What is the doctrine of original sin? Why, why does it even matter? Why should we even bother <clears throat> with answering a question like this? I mean, really, isn't the most important thing that you just go out and and do good things and get along with everyone and have great relationships and just be nice and love everybody? Isn't that what Christianity is really all about? What is it with with people like me who continue to come back to these doctrines, these beliefs, these so-called abstractions? And why do we insist that people affirm them as Christians? Does it really matter? Welcome back to The Reformed Rant. My name is Ed Dingus, and The Reformed Rant is a podcast where I rant about the theological, philosophical, and political issues taking shape in our society and in the churches, but I do so from a distinctly Reformed perspective. And today, I am going to spend some time talking about, ranting about the doctrine of original sin and the consequences of its denial. Absolutely treasure trove of theology, truth, doctrine in that song, Amazing Grace. And the sad thing is, the subject that I'm talking about today has extremely negative consequences regarding the truthfulness of the song, Amazing Grace. The doctrine of original sin is a basic and essential doctrine of the Christian faith. It is basic and essential because of the clarity with which Scripture teaches and reveals it. Okay, It's basic and essential because of the clarity with which Scripture teaches and reveals it. Whatever the Scriptures teach with clarity, no ambiguity, no obscurity, then that becomes, because of the nature of Scripture, essential. We do not, as human beings, have the right to hear God's voice clearly speaking to us in Scripture and just decide we will reject it and not believe it. One of the true signs, one of the signs of true faith that someone has genuinely been brought into the new covenant, so that someone has genuinely received a new heart, a heart of flesh, is genuine faith. Genuine faith, that kind of faith, takes God at his word it doesn't question the truthfulness of God's word. It may look at a particular teaching and we may question certain things about it, certain facts about it. Uh, we may examine our own interpretation. But if there is clarity, if it is revealed with great clarity, which all the essential doctrines of Christianity are revealed with great clarity in Scripture. Very few things in Scripture are obscure, uh, but there are some things that are obscure. This, is not, this doctrine is not one of them. Now, one of the tactics that is being employed today by progressive liberals 
You've got two ways to go here. You can either outright deny that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, accurate in all that it teaches and claims, or you can embrace a hermeneutic, a method of interpretation that allows you to play with Scripture, allows you to adjust, allows you to modify, allows you to edit the Scripture, to change the meaning of Scripture, to basically deny the fact that these things are revealed clearly in Scripture. For example, some individual, I don't remember the man's name, someone sent me a a uh, copy of a Twitter screenshot of a man <clears throat> who for years professes to be a Christian and for years embraced the biblical view of homosexuality, that it is unnatural, that it is wicked behavior, ungodly, that it is an abomination until recently. And his, his epiphany was when when he abandoned the clarity hermeneutic, the clarity principle that, that Scripture clearly teaches this, when he removed clarity and inserted ambiguity, he was able to abandon the teaching, the biblical teaching, on homosexuality. Well, if you do that, if that's the principle upon which you're going to operate, then Scripture... Uh, isn't clear on anything. And if Scripture isn't clear on anything, it's not authoritative because it's not clear. You see, the authority of Scripture also implies clarity. If there is no clarity, there can be no authority. That's a problem. It's a huge problem because... Any interpretation could be the right interpretation. And if that's the case, how could you have an authoritative interpretation? The authoritative interpretation of Scripture is, is this, the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. There is a movement within the evangelical churches today that repudiates the doctrine of original sin. When I did my uh, dissertation, I, I did it on the hermeneutics of the emergent church which everyone thinks that movement disappeared. They think that the emergent church movement crumbled, that it's no longer around. Well, it's no longer talked about, but it's it's still very much alive. What happened to the emergent church is, think of it like this. The emergent church is a ball of mud that's distinct. You can see it. You can hold it in your hand. It's there. Now, what happens to that ball of mud when you drop it into a pond of clear water? It muddies the pond. You can no longer see the ball. It, you think that it's gone, but when you look at that crystal clear, beautiful pond, it's no longer a crystal clear, beautiful pond. It's now muddy. And this is what has happened with the emergent church movement. It has been dropped into the churches. It scattered. They didn't. They came together, and they still do. There's still churches who are essentially emergent church churches, if you if you will. But for the most part, many of these people who were embracing these ideas that 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 Rob Bell. And um, McCartney and these guys were, were, or McLaren, Brian McLaren, were putting out, uh, they've scattered into our churches and they have brought their doctrines, new doctrines, with them. Uh, and uh, we should be, we should be aware of this. I mean, this is what is, this is what has happened. And this, this is why it feels like to us that many evangelicals are abandoning the faith. Now, the reason for this is that they're, these people, number one, are not true converts. There's a number of pagans, false converts, residing in the churches, many of them coming from this emergent church 
movement, deconstructing Christianity, deconstructing the doctrine of God, coming up with a new idea for what who God is, what God is, and what Christianity is, right? These false converts are residing in the churches as members of the church, claiming to love Jesus when in reality they despise the God revealed and described in Scripture. Their goal is to, is to deconstruct biblical Christianity and transform it into something it is not. Just like the world seeks to transform reality elsewhere into its own idea, to come up with its own reality, matter, reality, not just matter, reality, the state of things, uh, is, is just out there for us to do whatever we want to with. And wow, at least here in Western culture, we're doing all kinds of things with it. We're coming up with uh, our own set of norms, new norms, new moralities. Um, these people in our churches seek to do the same thing with the holy and the sacred. And this is because over the years, the church has, uh, has lowered its standards and in fact, in many cases, really eradicated them for what it what is required to become a member in the community of faith. Um, and this is, this is um, a symptom of arrogance on the part of elders, on the part of pastors, on the part of churches, to just think that they can do whatever they want when it comes to bringing people into the community. Um, and we cannot. That is, that is God's domain. That is God's business. The scriptures are set down, given to us, and they guide everything we do, and they do so authoritatively. There isn't any wiggle room. There isn't, there isn't this, this latitude that you have uh, being in the church to tinker with things. And the problem is we have far too many leaders uh, and churches tinkering with things, thinking that anyone should be allowed to be a member of, of the church if that's what they want to do. No one's perfect. Everyone sins. God understands. Uh, this is the thinking that that is exactly the mentality. And it's, it has led to a disastrous Situation. Now, it is the duty and the great honor and the privilege of the church and her pastors, leaders, teachers to stand up and be the obstacle God called them to be against false teachers, false teachings, false depictions of reality, um, the reality that, that God has created, and the revelation uh, about that reality that He has given to us. The body of Christ is called to present a unified front for truth, a unified front for truth um, against error, against lies, against immorality, against the inevitable darkness that is produced by sin. We think that we're, we, we're told that we're called to present a unified front for unity. It's a unified front for unity, and we need to do it nicely. That's that's the idea today. Uh, and all of that, that unified front for unity in a nice way, is being driven and influenced by a very uh, dark and deceptive feminism that has uh, come over both society and uh, the church. It is my perspective that those who deny the doctrine of Original sin also rejected God's revealed truth about the nature and the reality of sin and a fallen man. In other words, the denial of original sin necessarily entails the rejection of reality as God purposed it to be. The denial of original sin necessarily entails the rejection of reality as God purposed it to be and as it is. Now, what is original sin? It is a term referring to the universal defect in human nature caused by the fall. 
It entails the loss of original righteousness and the distortion of the image of God, the Imago Dei. Both those things, the loss of original righteousness, which is a legal, uh, a legal disposition, and then the distortion of the image of God, which is a natural disposition. As we can see from the description, original sin pertains to those two things. Our legal standing before God and our natural disposition toward God. Now, I don't, I'm not going to get into a ton of what we would say patristic views or evidence regarding original sin. The term original sin itself may have been coined by Augustine, but its root, roots are go far, far beyond Augustine um, and even the patristics. According to Irenaeus, for example, infants are reborn in baptism. Origen believed that infants were cleansed from the true stains of sin in them, and Cyprian referred to it as the contagion of the ancient death. In fact, when you think about why infant baptism emerged to begin with, and I'm a Baptist, so I reject infant baptism, but infant baptism has a deep, long history in Christianity, and to deny that would be simply ignorant. It's present in the in the early church. It's, it goes deep into the early early beginnings of Christianity, and the reason for that was had nothing to do with the covenants per se, and had everything to do with this this view. I suppose you could say there's there's a relationship between between the covenants. You can't you can't cleanly have a break there. But I, when I'm saying covenants, I'm talking about the debate around covenant theology, uh, which came later. The point here is that the reason infant baptism was, was a debate and a thing in the early church is because of the acceptance by the church, the belief in the church around the doctrine of original sin. Okay, so people who deny the doctrine of original sin must look at the early church uh, and recognize, they won't recognize this, but they, <laughs> I don't think they can escape it, that it's present there. It's obviously present there. And clearly it's present in Scripture. What does the Old Testament teach about man's legal and natural disposition toward God? 1 Kings 8.48 or 8.46 says, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Now, the parenthetical for there is no man who does not sin. Job 4.17 says, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And the obvious answer is no. Job 14.4, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Job 14.4. Job 15.14 says, what is man that he should be pure? Or who, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Yet we have people like Leighton Flowers, people from provisionism who are telling us that Human beings are born righteous. They are born innocent. Adam's sin had no impact on our legal standing before God from birth or on our nature. This is Pelagianism. Outright Pelagianism. It doesn't matter how you slice it. Job 25.4, how then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who was born of woman. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one. No one could stand. Psalm 143, 2. And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. And then there's Ecclesiastes 7.20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it?
Ezekiel 36-26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. According to the Old Testament, the natural disposition of man and the legal standing of man are both confirming of the doctrine of original sin. The legal standing of man before God is guilt, guilty, under judgment. The natural disposition of man, men born from women is that they are full of iniquity, unrighteous, unclean. Now, what does the New Testament teach about our legal disposition toward God? Romans 5.18 says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. The one transgression points, points us to Adam's fall. Peraptoma is the Greek word. It carries the sense of making a false step so as to lose one's footing. Morally, it is the violation of moral standards, offense, wrongdoing, sin. Notice that Paul says that it was through one transgression, one sin, one offense, that there resulted condemnation to all men. That word condemnation is guilt. Guilt. Okay. He does not say that through one, he does not say that through one transgression, many transgressions occurred and that these many transgressions resulted in condemnation to to all the men committing these many transgressions. That's, that's not what he said. So what you'll get is you'll get people like Leighton Flowers and these folks claiming that what Paul's really saying here is that, that this one transgression set a bad example and everybody followed that one transgression and committed transgressions of their own and therefore guilt came after they all committed their transgressions. But that is not what Paul wrote. Paul wrote, again, through one transgression, there resulted guilt. Now, if Flowers is right, if provisionists are right, if Pelagians are right, Paul should have said that through one transgression, there resulted all transgressions. And from all transgressions, because all men transgressed, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's not what Paul said, but that's what that's how the Pelagian and the provisionists one and the same. Read this text. So then as through one transgression there resulted all transgressions, and because all men sinned, all men were condemned, or there resulted condemnation to all men because of this. This is not what Paul said. How do we know this? Well, just read it first of all. But look, he's comparing and contrasting Adam's one transgression with Christ's one act of righteousness. Even so, there resulted one act of righteousness. So all men became guilty before God because of one transgression. Through one transgression, guilt resulted to all men. And through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, what the false converts, these false teachers, want this text to say is, again, that through one transgression, the conditions became possible for all men to sin and become guilty. But that is not what the text says. Through one actual transgression, there resulted guilt to all men. Period. Simple. Clear. Easy to understand. Not that difficult. 
If you're going to interpret this any other way, it is not because there's something in the text itself that's driving the interpretation or anything in any other text that's driving it. There's something foreign to the text, something external to the text that's motivating the, a person to handle this text differently because it's clear. Okay. Now, if you drop down to verse 19, there is a word, katistheme uh, in the Greek. Katistheme, and it, it's, it's placed in the aorist tense when referring to Adam's disobedience. Same word. But in the future tense when it's referring to Christ's obedience. Let me go over there and pull that pull that word that verse up and and show you what I'm talking about. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Pointing us to the judgment in the end, the final judgment. Notice, though, that the aorist tense, which is a tense that really is, is, is some people mistakenly think that it, it means past tense, but it's really looking at, at the act without any regard to its past, its present, or its future. It's just looking at it as a, as a whole. not focusing on time. Not focusing on time. Now, we can uh, turn to, to Schreiner's comments in this section of Romans. He says, One cannot separate the representative and constitutive roles of Adam and Christ in these verses. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ actually become sinners and righteous, respectively. Being in Adam, you become a sinner. Being in Christ, you become righteous. Still, Paul's focus here, as Wright says, is on status. People are sinners because they are in Adam. They are righteous because they are in Christ. All men in Adam are sinners. All men in Christ become righteous. In other words, the forensic is the basis and the foundation for the transformative. Schreiner continues, he says, This all people inevitably sin because they enter the world alienated from God. Right from the get-go. Paul claim, He goes on and says, Paul claims that all human beings die and are condemned because of Adam's sin, but he never conceived of separating individual sin from Adam's. Human beings die because of their own sin and because of Adam's sin. Both. If they don't die because of their own sin, they die because of Adam's sin. How do you know this? Babies die. Even though babies haven't sinned, they haven't committed an act of transgression, they are still, by nature, transgressors. They are transgressors in their nature, which means that at the first opportunity they have, as they grow and develop, they will sin. As sons and daughters of Adam, we enter the world spiritually dead and sinners. But God in his grace has reversed the baleful results of Adam's sin by imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. Such an imputation is an act of grace. It is totally undeserved. And now you're starting to feel... Uh, the co potential consequences or the consequences that this denial of original sin has on grace. Shriner rightly takes the position that our status in Adam is covenantal in nature. What does the New Testament teach about our natural disposition toward God? Well, the heart is the seat of all evil. It is used as a synonym for human nature. Jesus said, for from within... Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, 
fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. What does the provisionist say? What does the Pelagian say? That they're from without, that they're external, they're environmental. Jesus said they're internal. They are part of the very fabric, the nature of fallen man. Jesus disagrees. Right? Sin marks, dominates, and spoils not only the physical aspects of the individual person, and not only our thinking and willing, feeling and striving as individual elements, but also their source, that is, our innermost being, our heart. Thus, if the heart has been enslaved by sin, the whole person is in bondage. This is something, this is an aspect of original sin that Pelagians, provisionists, deny. Human nature, human nature naturally produces evil thoughts. Naturally, not it. We don't have to learn them. We don't have to be born into an environment where it's sin. If you were to take this Pelagianism, this modern Pelagianism, which is also called provisionism, if you were to take it and apply it and do a, a thought experiment, let's suppose that a that that two children six months old, we're, we drop them on an island, find a way to give them everything they need to survive and live and grow up as adults. We isolate them from everything else in the world. Those two children would have no need of Jesus Christ. They would have no need of grace. They would have no need of anything, and they would be inherently righteous and perfect before God. And if they should choose to sin, it would be entirely detached from their nature. It would be just like Adam's sin. A complete free choice that has nothing to do with the nature of who they are. That's that's what provisionism believes. That's what Pelagianism believes. And that completely and totally dismisses the fact that we are living under the curse of God. Christianity does not believe that. Christianity teaches that those two babies, regardless of where you place them, and you can isolate them from this world all you want, but they will, as soon as the opportunity starts to arise, they will sin. The possibility that they will exist on that island as adults and not sin doesn't exist because they are by nature sinners and they're going to sin. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, 19, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Those infants have an evil human heart. Human nature does not honor God, but is morally and spiritually dark. Romans 1.21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Human nature is not righteous, does not seek to be righteous. As it is written, Romans 3.10-18, there's none righteous, not even one. There is none 
who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Human nature rejects the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Human nature is hostile to God and unable to please God, according to Romans 8, 5 through 9. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to subject itself to the law of God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So in order to move from being in the flesh to being in the Spirit, or in order to go from being or having a mind set on the flesh to having a mind that's set on the Spirit, what has to happen? The Spirit of God has to indwell you. If that doesn't happen, you, your state, your condition is a mindset on the flesh. And until the Spirit of God indwells you, you will continue to be a mindset on the flesh, hostile to God, not subjecting yourself to God's law and not able to subject yourself to God's law. The Spirit of God has to initiate. He has to move in and work if you are to go from being the mindset on the flesh to the mindset on the Spirit. This is just not an act of the human will. This is your state. Human nature is under the wrath of God. Ephesians 2, 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were, we were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Children of wrath, by nature, by nature, children of of wrath. Provisionism, Pelagianism, completely ignores this claim by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. By nature, we are children of wrath. No, 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 they say. No, no, no. We're, we're born innocent. Adam's, Adam's sin had no bearing on us, no effect on us. Human nature is cognitively useless. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Notice how the apostle Paul and the writers of the New Testament describe the world when they're actually getting into a description of the pagans. It's never flattering. It's never, well, you know, gosh, uh, you know, we just, they're broken. Uh, the world is just broken. And, and these, these, these people, they just need Jesus. And if, if we can just, you know, come up with a way uh, to, to reach them and to love them and to care for them, then we can win them to Christ. That's not how they're described by the apostles. They're not broken. They're 
they walk in the futility of their own mind. They're darkened in their understanding. They're ignorant. They walk in the hardness of their own heart. They are callous. They are given over to sensuality for every kind of impurity and greediness. They are wicked rebels against a holy God. Now, do they they need love? Of course, they need love. And how do we love them? We tell them that they are walking in the futility of their mind. We tell them that they are living under the wrath of God. We tell them that they stand before God guilty of not acknowledging their creator and that judgment is coming and that they should flee from the wrath of God. And how do they do that? They do that by running to the cross of Jesus Christ and acknowledging the Son of God as their Savior, placing their entire faith and trust in everything he did and take him at his word, for he is God and cannot lie, and he is good. That's what that's what that's how we love them. That's how we love them. I know, I know. It's mean to tell people they're going to hell. Human nature rejects the things of God and is not able to understand them. Again, First Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Human nature is morally and spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 describes them this way, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The denial of original sin is by definition a denial of biblical Christianity, folks. And as one can see, to deny the doctrine of original sin is to contradict both universal guilt as well as the universal need to be born again. Now, what is the motivation? I think at the end of the day, the the movement to deny original sin is a movement to deconstruct Christianity at its most basic level. It's not that far removed if removed at all, from the emergent church movement. Any view of sin other than the one expressly set down in Scripture will result in a set of completely new ideas regarding Christianity. In fact, it results in a new worldview that is distinctly not Christian at all. It would seem to me that the reason this doctrine is coming under fire as of late is due to its close proximity to the Reformed doctrine of total depravity. That's partly That's part of it. The other part of it is the emergent church's rejection of this harsh, judgmental God. It's like this in Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. The people who are engaged in denying this doctrine are typically attempting to defend God in in a reality that has evil in it. And they're they're struggling, they're struggling to do that, because to them the God that exists is a loving, loving God. In fact, that's the only attribute that matters, is that God is is love. And so, in order to preserve this idea, this doctrine, this God is love, every other doctrine, because this doctrine is the most important doctrine, every other doctrine, can be trampled on. Any tension that might exist between two doctrines because of the finite, fallen human mind has to be eradicated. That tension has to be relieved, and we have to make them sink together. And the guide, the doctrine that is the guide, is in our mind the most important doctrine, and that is that God is love. And from there, that that from there, Christianity is completely deconstructed and reconstructed so that every other doctrine within the Christian system coheres perfectly without any tension whatsoever with that idea that God is love. And of course, it is the idea of love itself that's the problem because God is love. He's just not love in the way that pagan culture defines love. And that's the big problem. The unbelieving mind defines love differently than God himself. And God is the authoritative definition of of what love is, not us, not human beings. God is the standard. 
So we think about this. You think about what they're trying to do. Now, go back to the Love Wins, Rob Bell, and ask yourself this question. I said this to somebody the other day who was, who was trying to defend their idea of God as being really loving and nice and kind. And I said to this person, for starters, neither you nor I could ever send our children to hell to burn eternally in a lake of fire and torment without any hope ever of escaping. We, we could not do that because we are not perfectly righteous and we don't have a perfect love for righteousness. If we did, we, we would be able to do that, but we can't do that. We are feeble. We are limited. Now, imagine this with me. Let's take a 14-year-old. Let's agree that a 14-year-old is culpable for their personal transgression. And it doesn't even have to be 14, be 16. Let's just say you've got this human being, this young person, 14, 15, 16 years old, and for the first time in their life, they have the opportunity to sin. And they, they take it. And two seconds later, their life is snatched from them and they die and they go stand before God. They spent less than five seconds of their life sinning against God. And God as a perfectly holy judge sentences that person to hell eternally. Forever. That is the God that Rob Bell and the emergent church movement repudiated. That is the God that liberal Protestantism repudiates. Progressive Christianity repudiates. The emergent church repudiates. And now, as we are observing more and more and more people within evangelicalism repudiate that God. We see it in the denial of the doctrine of original sin. It's far too closely related to the Reformed doctrine of total depravity and the God that is, is described by what they would call Calvinism and what we would call the Bible. Um, and so it has to be dealt with. It has to be repudiated. It has to be tinkered with. It has to be changed. This is why you also see the, the doctrine of annihilationism coming into more and more evangelical churches. This very same reason. We are not preaching and teaching the doctrine of God in our churches the way that the Bible reveals God. We are far too soft on sin. We do not talk about holiness. We don't talk about the fear of God. We don't talk about hell and eternal punishment. We don't talk about the nature of sin and the nature of, of God's holiness and his righteous character. And as a result, people are are coming up and creating or holding on to a creation of the God that exists in their mind that's pagan in nature and not Christian. Our duty as the church of Jesus Christ, from the pastors all the way through to Sunday school teachers and mature believers, is to train new converts on who God is, what he is like, what does he reveal about himself? I mean, you're talking about, in the Old Testament, you're talking about, uh, let's just look at Elijah and how he dealt with the prophets of Baal. 450 prophets of Baal he took down to the river bank and he personally executed them with the sword, every single one of them. Remember Jehu and how he treated uh these idolaters, right? It, it's it's 
You look at the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the New Testament. He has not changed. His attitude toward sin and rebellion hasn't changed at all. We, we confuse God's act of mercy and grace through Christ, the Christ event. We somehow think that that event changed, that God changed his mind about sin or his attitude. He didn't. That's not why the Christ event exists. We see the perfect holiness and righteousness of God scattered throughout the Old Testament. We also see his mercy. But in the Christ event, we see both. We see God putting his own son on the cross. He hated, he hated sin so much that he put his own son through the worst possible death available and imaginable. That's the righteousness of God. And he did it for us, the elect that he calls to himself. That's the love of God. That's the mercy of God. And it is amazing because by nature, we are hostile to God from birth. We are guilty in our legal standing before God. And he still did this. The logical connection, I think, between original sin and total depravity and the existence of evil in the world and the divine and divine sovereignty, right, creates an uneasy feeling in the in those people who are anti-reformed, and I, I mean anti-reformed, in that they are they are hostile toward reformed theology. Not not everybody who is non-reformed is hostile. These people are hostile. They seem to have no limits in in how far they will go to twist essential doctrines related to God, man, sin, salvation, in order to avoid anything that remotely resembles a reformed soteriology, in order to avoid anything that resembles a reformed view on divine sovereignty, or in other words, biblical Christianity. Well, thank you for listening. I hope that I have said something that uh, might provoke you to think a little bit more about this doctrine uh, about biblical Christianity, about the condition of mankind. And I, I really hope that uh, this helps you appreciate the grace of God that we see at the cross. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com <laughs>